Have you seen, uh, we were just talking about For All Mankind TV <laughs> show. It's awesome, isn't it? I love it. I've only just started it. Where, are you right? Are you right? Are you right up to date? Yeah. She says a onion. No, no, no. Spoilers. No. Spoilers. Jesus. I don't want to know. I don't want to know who that was. I don't know who that was. La, la, la. Welcome to Cloud Realities, a conversation show exploring the practical and exciting alternate realities unleashed through cloud-driven transformation. I'm Dave Chapman. And I'm Rob Kernahan. And you will hear, unfortunately, we haven't got Shalk with us this week. She's on vacation still. So big shout out to you, Shalk. We're missing you and we'll see you soon. But with us this week, we have a very special guest for our 50th episode we have Gene Kim with us. So Gene is the author of the DevOps Handbook, the Phoenix Project, the Unicorn Project, and most recently, Wiring the Winning Organization, which is his new work, looking at liberating our collective greatness through slowification, simplification, and amplification. And we are delighted that Gene's joining us and we'll join Gene in a second. But Rob, before that, 50 episodes, what do you make of that? I think, Dave, just before we continue this conversation, and I don't want to be the pedant on the show, but we have... Again, fact, you're going to be, you're again, be well, the pedant again. Wouldn't I know about that? I would like to call it. We've actually done 71, but yeah, yeah we're, let not, let, let's not get facts. Oh, I completely messed that up. Yeah. Sorry. Let, <laughs> I can't say... It's easy, easy for you to say, Rob. <laughs> Man, you guys aren't very good at this. No. <laughs> <laughs> you would think after 71 episodes, we might be able to do it, but... Let's not. What's the phrase about fact? We shouldn't what, let what, facts get in the way of, of a, a good, good story. story. <laughs> yeah. Although it has been an interesting 50 episodes, lots of lives in there actually making it 71, but we're not going to talk about that. No, it's my arcane numbering system that means that this is the formal in studio official 50, 50 good episodes. Is that and, what and the way thank it works? God yeah. we've got a professional guest for it, Rob. I know, because it's amateur hour over here, isn't it? <laughs> it oh, no, is. we've, uh, we've had lots of fun, and one stolen monkey, so that's... Uh, that's a, a chaos monkey, episodes. I think a you're chaos fine. Monkey thank God you're here, Gene. <laughs> no, I'm so, glad. I'm so uh, delighted to be here. Uh, David, some number of years since we last talked, uh, and is. so uh, thanks for having me on. And Rob, so good to see you. Good to see you too. Really good to have you, Gene. I'm dying to get into this conversation. So look, let's start with winding back in some of your you know, earlier and very illustrious works, Gene. So let's start with maybe the DevOps handbook huh. and just walk us through a little bit like the handbook and then Phoenix and Unicorn projects. Give us a through line for you about how the arc feels, maybe reflecting on it a little bit. Oh, for sure. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Yeah, so to set some background, uh, the DevOps handbook came out in 2016, and that was really the attempt to sort of codify what I had learned to date studying high-performing technology organizations. Uh, that was uh, started for me back in 1999 when I was the uh, CTO and technical co-founder of a company called Tripwire. It feels like a different world, doesn't it? Yeah, I exactly. Tripwire. What happened to Tripwire? Where, where did that go? So was I was the... there for 13 years, and uh, I left right after uh, we had completed our S1 filing to go public. Um, and so I left. Uh, we never actually made it to the public markets. And so I left to uh, work on the Phoenix Project uh, full-time, right. which actually came out in 2013. And, you know, that was – so I'm very – 
so grateful for the tripwire experience. And I, I can't uh, tell you how many of those lessons learned <laughs> you know, that, that went to the devil's handbook <laughs> could have come in really handy, uh, you know, back in 2004 and 2005. The Phoenix Project was that business fable about, yeah. you know, a technology leader's attempt to, you know, ship products quickly while trying to maintain, you know, reasonable uptime and availability and, you know, achieve security and compliance objectives <laughs> and, and yeah. failed miserably and what they did about it. And uh, so that was uh, based on one of my favorite books called The Goal by Dr. Eliyahu Goldratt, which was a novel about a manufacturing plant manager who had to fix his cost and due date issues in 90 days. Otherwise, they would shut the plant down. Right, and so right. this book sold 5 million copies. Uh, it's taught Amazing. in most MBA curriculums. And so the Phoenix Project is really uh, literally modeled after the goal. Right, um, right. And so the DevOps Handbook was uh, meant to be the nonfiction prescriptive guide you know, th that would be the companion to the book that says, all right, how did they uh, achieve all those incredible things that were described in the Phoenix Project? And when you look back on the influence of, I mean, particularly the Phoenix Project thing, but the DevOps Handbook as well, and, and you know, you see now that many organizations in the world are sort of, if they're not doing it, they're aspiring to do it. And it's a, it's a major part of cloud-native culture and cloud-native conversation. What do you reflect on is what you think are the biggest influences that it had, and also what are the influences that it had that maybe surprised you? Hmm. Yeah, I, what I... I'm really so proud of in the DevOps Handbook, which I co-authored with uh, Jez Humble. So he's, you know, uh, famous for many things, but uh, he was also the co-author of the Continuous Delivery book, which you know, I think changed generations of uh, developers in terms of, you know, uh, how do you think about uh, a different way to merge and integrate and test and deploy into production? Right. And uh, it was also Patrick uh, Dubois, who famously coined the term DevOps back in 2009. Uh, John Willis, kind of famous for his contributions in Infrastructure's Code. You know, he was uh, one of the early chef people at Chef and one of the early DevOps days uh, people with uh, Patrick Dubois. And also Dr. Nicole Forsgren, uh, who I worked with for uh, on the Accelerate book and the State of DevOps research. She came in and uh, uh, contributed to the second edition. I think what was remarkable about the DevOps Handbook in 2016 was that I think it was one of the first books to really codify practices that spanned development, right? Mm. Like uh, Continuous Delivery did. You know, QA, like so much of the, uh, you know, the testing and QA books. Um, and kind of this next generation infrastructure practices and platform yeah. engineering practices. Uh, and put it all into one book. Uh, right. so, uh, right. and I, one of the things I'm just really proud of in that book is that uh, there were 50 case studies that weren't just the tech giants, uh, but, you know, half came from large complex organizations, you know, that don't look like, you know, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Microsoft. Instead, you know, they represented uh, some of the largest brands uh, across almost every industry vertical. So, uh, you know, I think that was uh, what made the book unique and uh, hopefully influential in you know, people's journeys. The thing that really struck me when I when I read the Phoenix Project and when it influenced me, and it was probably going back, <laughs> probably ten years ago. Yeah, now, that's right. Actually, when yeah, when it, when I was certainly, and that's when I picked. It, it had up. its anniversary, didn't it? Because there was a yeah, there was a, a big fanfare about it. Yeah, in oh, fact, it came out. The book came out eleven years ago. Oh, well, congratulations! Twenty thirteen. Incredible and still selling strong, I'd imagine. It was the humanistic part of it that really struck me. So you know, you can. You can talk about these concepts in, in manualistic terms, but the idea that there was a sort of the, here's how the humans all interact in these situations, and, and you got that through the novelistic take on it, I thought was, I thought was really powerful. That was really powerful. Yeah, I, I think what is uh, still surprising to me uh, is just how 
that seems to identify this universality that happened in any organization. I mean, I think uh, I can't tell you how many emails I've gotten and how many times people have said, holy cow, it's like you've been hiding in our conference rooms. You just right, described right. the meeting I came out of. <laughs> you just, I know these people. And you know, I think for me, the, the lesson, and, and in fact, you know, uh, I, I say it's surprising, but it's also not surprising because uh, Dr. Goldratt, who wrote the goal, he said the same thing. He said, how many times do people say, it's like you've been hiding in our manufacturing plant. And, you know, we just had our boss helicopter in, <laughs> right? And uh, you know, describe about a, an order that must ship by the end of the day, right? And yeah, and it's because I think he identified, you know, these forces that were at work within every organization, uh, right? And so in manufacturing, it was between sales and manufacturing and uh, uh, the production scheduling system. and in DevOps, it was, you know, that chronic conflict between, you know, dev wanting to ship features quickly into production, right? Ops wanting to uh, not uh, ship features because it would always jeopardize uptime and availability and security, mm -hmm. right? And so, uh, you know, when you have those sort of forces in opposition, uh, you, you do end up with these common themes and these common patterns of like what goes wrong, right? And so yeah. uh, there, there are human issues for sure. Although that point about you hiding in the boardroom, I now have a mental image of you crouching behind a plant taking notes as you, <laughs> record, the, as you record the horror that's unfolding in the traditional ways of working. I, I just a, a funny, uh, it's a, that's an interesting observation, uh, Rob, because uh, you know when people ask, where did the Phoenix Project come from? I mean, it was literally a file I kept on my Palm Pilot called the quote file. Right, and every you time I would hear something, quotes. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so it is literally that's what you were doing, <laughs> yeah, I was like, and that's the beauty of it. Is it the anecdotal evidence builds over time to say there's enough of this here now to show yeah. that it's an you know it's endemic or systemic, whichever way you want to describe it. But the um, yeah, it's that that this is the reality, uh, without doubt. <laughs> right, and you hear certain people complaining, or uh, you know, you hear and you hear it characterized in certain ways, right? And you just realize, you know, there's something really interesting happening here. And so I started that back in probably 1999, 1997, mm, right? Mm. And so uh, by the time the Phoenix, time to write the Phoenix Project, yeah, I had over a decade of uh, quotes of things that uh, I thought were hilarious or insightful <laughs> that, you know, yeah. just had to go in the book. I thought the bit in the Phoenix Project that really resonated with me was the the section of it and I'm probably going to misquote this horribly, Gene. So do feel free to do feel free to correct me here. But there was a great bit where you showed the lag time between all of the different ticketing systems that, that <laughs> go on in an organization. And I'm like, yes, that's the quantifiable element that I'm going to try and get to grips with. No, absolutely. In fact, uh, that was something I wanted to explore in the Unicorn Project as well. Is this, uh, you know, what does a worst case architecture look like? Uh, you know, how can you design a system? Plenty of them about. I'm probably responsible for a few. Yeah, so the Phoenix Project was told really from the ops perspective, right? And the Phoenix Project was yeah, essentially yeah. the same story told from the dev perspective. And you know, I thought was what, the, what made the thought experiment so interesting was you take, you know, Maxine, you know, the organization's best developer, right? She's one of these, you know, what, um, you know, some people would sort of think, oh, that, that's one of the quote mythical 10X developers. Hmm. You take her, right, who's, in, you know, creating greatness all around her and then she gets marooned in the phoenix project which is a wasteland of you know technical debt neglect right. uh of right. uh, silos that can't communicate and uh you know you've basically negated all of her superpowers right and she can't do anything you know she can't build can't test can't deploy can't <laughs> can't see can't get logs can't get anything right and, and just as a lesson was really um that this is not the fault of the individual contributor. This is a fault of leadership, right? Is that somehow leadership has created uh, a wiring in the organization that has made it impossible for even, <laughs> even the best engineer to do their work Entrepreneur. easily and well.
It's that it's that thing about creating. How do you create autonomy and empowerment in an organisation, <laughs> but right. still do it in a way that means that people don't go crazy and do the weird stuff? And there yeah. is a bit of trust, and it's that you've got to let trust propagate through the system, and then make sure you're learning as you go. And I think so many organisations still struggle with that. They try and lock everything down because they think that's the way to do it, and it's just so it's counterintuitive sometimes for them to think actually no. If you give people the freedom, a they're happier, b they're more motivated, and c they do a better job. Yeah. In fact, can, can I just pick up that thread? Because I, I mean, I think that was really the the core of the mission going into uh, working with Dr. Steven Spear from the MIT Sloan School of Business on uh, the book, Wiring the Winning Organization that came out Thanksgiving 2023. 20, uh, mm. And the notion, right, that there's you know, these platitudes that leaders have to, you know, enable autonomy and uh, empowerment, <laughs> right? And uh, yeah, that's true. But it's it's really you know, how does one do that yeah. right and the practical nature of it yeah exactly and you know there was another mystery that uh, you know had been on my mind for you know going on a, a decade in fact over a decade uh, which was you know both Steve and I shared the suspicion in fact let me introduce Steve first uh, so he is famous for his contributions to studying the Toyota production system mm-hmm. so he is the author of the famous Harvard Business Review article called. Uh, that was published in 1999 called Decoding the DNA of the Toyota Production System. Right. Which, is that leading to lean? and? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. No, absolutely. It was. Uh, he was part of that uh, second generation of researchers uh, looking at you know what made Toyota so different. And right. so that was actually based on his uh, doctoral dissertation at the Harvard Business School. And right. in part of that work, he worked on the plant floor of a tier one Toyota supplier for six months. Hmm. And so... You know, he extended that work beyond just the high repetition work of manufacturing to engine design at Pratt and Whitney, you know, to helping build a safety culture at Alcoa, and and so uh, you know, after taking his uh, course in 2014, uh, I felt like there was a, some. Uh, many people have pointed out that you know the, the beliefs of DevOps uh, were so much influenced by the work of you know lean into the production system, mm. uh, but there are actually very different types of work, and so yeah. what is in common between DevOps and Agile? And lean and Toyota production system, and for that matter, safety culture, resilience engineering, mm. psychological safety, and so you know, after three you know years of work, you know, our conclusion was that you know there are all incomplete expressions of a far greater whole. And I think the real lesson in the book is that the job of leaders is to enable their people in their organization to do their work easily and well. And yeah, then, do the right thing well. Make the hard right thing, thing well. hard to do and the right thing easy to do, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. And so when you go back to sort of the, uh, the Unicorn Project and Maxine's plight, right, is how is it that you can take this same engineer, put them in, in one setting, they are able to do incredible things. You put them in another setting and they can do nothing, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so whose fault is that? It's not Maxine's fault. It's the leader's fault. And we'll come on, I think, to worrying the organization in a second, but I do want to dwell on the Unicorn project. And yes, what I think you were about to say, now I apologize for interrupting you there, but like, what, what do you think the outcomes of the Unicorn project were? And, and are you happy that those have sunk in enough into the industry? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I am so... This is actually one of my the favorite things I've written. Um, I just uh, if the Phoenix Project was meant to sort of point out something you know that we've all felt, mm. uh, the Unicorn Project was meant to be sort of like the worst case scenario. Let's let's, let's see if we can conjure up a scenario. Right. <laughs> that is so like, bad, yes, <laughs> so it's bad. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and what's kind of tragic and also hilarious is that some many people say I recognize the situation. Right? Yes, yeah. it's like it's my day job. That's <laughs> my, my day, day job. job. Yeah. Uh, 
but it was it was meant to be a thought experiment of like, uh, and I'm so grateful to that because I don't think I could have uh, have co-authored Wiring the Winning Organization without that full exploration of the space to say what are all the ways that we can deprive uh, people of their ability to have independence of action, right? To do their yeah. work independently without having to you know, deal with scores or hundreds of other people uh, you know, uh, for them, you know, to be able to work in uh, conditions where you can do experimentation safely, to do your work safely mm. without causing, you know, even small problems, causing giant problems, right? That uh, right. you have no feedback on your work. You can't see what you're doing, right? And it turns out like those are all the dimensions, right? That, uh, you know, is required to, you know, uh, do your work easily and well, right? And if you can't do your work easily and well, there's no way the organization, you know, can achieve the most important things that the organization needs to do. What I love about that is you've literally theorized the worst possible thing that could happen. And then there's loads of realities that, are, that, could, that could, it completely yeah. aligns with the people holding their hands up. You just go, how, how is that true? Maybe it could get worse. Who, who knows? But there's like, a, I think a lot of people empathized with it and meant it's not just me. It's not just my situation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm in a club of others as well. And I think that there's almost like a catharsis through the this is how it is that people understand that it's not just them stuck in their reality thinking how did this happen it's there is some commonality <laughs> with others yeah i'm oh, sorry just a, one of the most heartbreaking uh things is that uh you know because the uh, uh maxine's play because they have to capitalize uh their uh development hours you know she has to time card uh, and log everything, right? And so not only does she have to face the uh, indignity and frustration of not being able to get anything done, she has to record it in the time log, right? And, say, <laughs> and a good friend, uh, Mick, said, oh my gosh, you know, uh, like we, he's had to deal with that, right? Yeah. Because we wrote the Project Erotic book, you know, CTO at Plan View, formerly Tasktop. Anyway, just uh, the fact that, you know, you know, I thought that was a bit kind of pushing the absurdity a little bit too far. And I've, I've heard from so many people like, uh, it's true. <laughs> it's happened. It's a reality. <laughs> yeah, it's terrifying, isn't it? The, the amount of organizations you, you come across that, I mean, literally have t t textbook versions of this problem. They have technical debt that's almost completely unavoidable at this point. And they have to create massive acts of transformation to get themselves out of the, out of that situation into something different and that's not an exception is it that is like the norm and like one of my um, observations on this is i think that it generally are and, and particularly in you know kind of let's call them more traditional organizations versus more modern tech organizations it had become such the report to the cfo very financially driven manages a cost center and it hasn't had the opportunity to, you know, constantly self-modernize and constantly evolve as a function because it's being managed down, I don't know, five, 10% each year in cost. <laughs> and then they're just going to sweat the environment the whole time. And it builds up malfunctioning organizations. Yeah. Yeah, that resonates uh, deeply with me. And I think that represents a reality that I think is uh, unfortunately all too common. I sort of almost blame the millennium bug and then the sort of the, the initial dot-com boom hysteria, not the work itself, but the hysteria around it. Because it seemed like so many expectations in boardrooms were misset by what IT could and couldn't do in the, in the late 90s and some of the issues it might have that then either didn't manifest or they didn't manifest in a big enough way. And, you know, and boards were almost like, you know, like, yeah, another IT thing. Let's just shift that over. They're, they're costing too much. 
Let's push him into the corner, into a box. And actually, we're living with the regret of some of that. Yeah, and if I can just extend that a bit further, and uh, you know, I think the kind of the logical continuation of that is that uh, technology becomes the order takers of the business, right? Uh, right. We just yeah, yeah, quote right. do Very what the business says, right? And it becomes a transactional. Uh, in fact, that's an interesting word you use, right? It becomes transactional versus developmental, right? Yeah. Where yeah. it's uh, I I say you do, <laughs> right? right? And uh, which is sort of the opposite of what we want, which is that you know the job of technology is not to obey the orders of the business. Instead, it's really to you know help achieve the most important goals of the goals, dreams, and aspirations of uh, the organizations that they serve, right? And to un to liberate everyone's you know ability to solve those problems. And you know, hopefully that's a that transformation is described well in both the Phoenix Project and the Unicorn Project, as well as in the DevOps handbook and wiring the winning organization. Well, let's use that as a perfect bridge into wiring the winning organization. And first of all, frame it for us. So tell us about what it was like going into it. You touched on it a little earlier, but let's return to it. What was your thinking going in and where did you end up with its sort of core concept? Yeah, right. I had mentioned before uh, to you that uh, it was this working on this book with Steve was uh, the most intellectually challenging thing I've ever worked on, right. <laughs> without, without a right. doubt. Uh, in fact, uh, there were probably yeah, two points or three points where, uh, at least two, where uh, I was wondering if I was not smart enough to finish this book. Whether <laughs> that, uh, you know, it was maybe time to walk. Away I feel from like this. that reading books, James. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Famous five, Dave. How many yeah. do you, those did Mate, you get through? Gets, gets to be a struggle. But it was, uh, it was also the most rewarding thing I ever worked on just because, uh, yeah, I think anyone can take something simple and make it look complex. Is it really much harder to right. you know, take something complex and legitimately make it simple enough where you know, you've actually identified something you know, fundamental? It's the famous misquoted Churchill thing, isn't it? Which is, he opens a two-page letter apologizing for sending a two-page letter because he didn't have time to write yeah. a one-page letter. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, and, and so the, uh, what was really great was... Um, you know, in this exploration is that, you know, I think we came up with a very satisfying um, explanation of, you know, what is in common, you know, between things like Agile, DevOps, um, and Toyota Production System Lean, uh, and, and so much more. And, you know, the conclusion uh, is that there's really only three mechanisms of performance. Whenever you see an organization go from, you know, good to great or not so good to great, mm. th- there can only be three mechanisms at work. And it's because that, you know, essentially there's two zones, you know, we call it the danger zone, winning zone, is that, the danger zone is really meant to describe the worst possible uh, conditions in which to solve problems. Right. Uh, and, you know, so let's uh, counter kind of what that is, is that, uh, you know, you ha- you're solving something under enormous time pressure mm-hmm. that if you make a mistake, uh, it's catastrophic. <laughs> and yeah, if it's catastrophic, right. you can't undo. Um, and uh, that means that uh, you can't experiment and learn. So, you know, learning is, you know, and is, iterative it's experimental right and so like if you're doing and it something, can be messy and it can be messy oh absolutely right um and so if you can imagine you know solving a really tough problem in production during an outage in a highly coupled situation where you know changing one small thing can take everything down right that's kind of the worst case uh condition you know to solve problems right and so you know, let's imagine the opposite. Now, ideally, you know, what would you want? You want to be able to be uh, doing experiments and learning, not in production, but in planning and practice. Uh, you are working on a small piece of a problem that's 
you know, decoupled from everything else. That means you can make uh, small changes and, uh, you know, in the worst case, it results in a small problem, right? It doesn't sort of uh, ripple out and, you know, cascade into a large problem. Uh, you have fast feedback. You can see what you're doing. You know, uh, you can see what the results are, which means you can iterate and learn, right? And then you can sort of codify those. You can build up the routines, intuitions, playbooks so that, you know, when the time comes, you know, you can actually, you know, do them even in the most intense, you know, time critical situations. And so, uh, you know, that's uh, what leads into the, the three mechanisms. So uh, the first one is about slowification. Right. All right. Solve problems, not in production, but in planning and practice. And so like whenever you see someone doing highly consequential work and they look, you know, they can do it flawlessly, you know, <laughs> they had to have invested in planning and practice. It. Yeah, they yeah, drilled yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, the, so the first uh, solification is all about sort of moving where that problem solving is happening, right? From production to planning and practice, you want to push it kind of in, earlier in time. Uh, right. The second one is uh, simplification, which actually changes the nature of the problem being solved. So uh, the worst case is you have uh, everything tightly coupled to each other, right? Yeah. So that you can't change one small piece without impacting the other pieces. So there's really three ways to break the problem up, uh, which is, you know, either you incrementalize it, right? So small batches, you know, so that should resonate with anyone doing agile type stuff. Uh, the second one, uh, way to do it is modularization. So you take the big problem and partition them into small problems, so that they can be worked on independently. And what's interesting is the third one, which is uh, you can, or you can linearize it. Uh, so, sorry, modularization, it should sort of evoke into uh, uh, your mind like the API re-architecture of Amazon in the early 2000s. They went from a situation where even small changes require 3,000 engineers to have to coordinate and communicate. And it's sort of a blast radius on the change, isn't totally. it, where you go, yeah. oh, oh exactly right. Exactly right. Um, so we can talk a little bit more about that later, but, uh, you know, so they moved into two pizza teams, created you know, more of a service-oriented architecture, which allowed that independence of action, that blast yeah. radius containment. Decoupling. Decoupling, really exactly. Yeah. And so one of the key aha moments, the biggest aha moments is that you know, the Toyota production system, assembly lines, that's like the same thing. What modularization does for parallel processes, uh, linearization does for sequential processes. So um, an example of that in our world would be CICD pipelines. Is right. that... Right. Work that was once uh, all in a big Gantt chart crossing three different ticketing systems, you want to tie it together into like an assembly line process, which not only you can automate, but actually creates independence of action, just like modularization. So now the build engineer can do things independently of the QA engineer and the, of the security engineer, right? And you get this single piece flow. So that's a like what a marvelous sort of insight that was. Hmm. And then so that's simplification and then amplification. You want to create a system that even weak signals of failure can be amplified so they can be decisively acted upon to ideally prevent, but mm. better detect and correct for the problem. And so, you know, you want a system that is uh, uh, rich in feedback that, uh, you know, people can see what they're doing. And let's just imagine the opposite. Imagine a system uh, where even weak, you know, where weak signals of failure are uh, suppressed unheard or even extinguished <laughs> right because i can't imagine that happening <laughs> no 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 generally things are very transparent is what i find so so those are the three mechanisms slowify simplify and amplify and uh you know some of the practices that we associate with you know whether it's lean or devops you can easily slot into uh, hmm. those three categories 
Well, let's maybe take each one in turn and have a look at it through the lens of a case study, if that if that makes some sense. So let's, let's start out with SlowFi then. So that was solving problems up to the front of the chain when you're in a, a position, the way I heard it anyways, when you're in a position where you can take your time, dismantle things, and you know you're not going to have a production impact versus trying to problem solve within the heat of the moment. Is that, have I, have I got the gist Absolutely. of that correct? Yes. And, you know, what's interesting <laughs> is uh, one might observe that SlowFi is not actually a real word. <laughs> so we had to make it up. And the reason uh, why we, is that- We enough. work in tech. We make yes, up words yeah. all the time. You're happy. We'll add it to the dictionary next year. Just say it enough. You'll be fine. Oh, doing this show, I'm so used to made up words, Gene. They just pass me by now. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> we didn't do that lightly. And our observation was that there's no single word in English that describes this very, you know, recognizable concept or, you know, mm. because we have a lot of added for this notion that you have to slow down to speed up or you have to stop sawing to sharpen the saw. This notion that you're making a short-term investment for a longer-term gain. Mm. And, Mm. you know, we felt that, you know, that maybe the lack of that word, you know, is the reason why that, you know, it's very difficult. You know, there's some people who say, if you can't say it, you can't think it. Well, it's funny that you should observe that because literally as you were saying that, I was thinking not only does it lack a word, but actually... It, it lacks quite a lot of implementation in real life. You know, lo- lots of people do throw those phrases around, but actually the reality of the situation is, I'm not sure people really do do that, or when they do do that, it's such an uncomfortable conversation to get into. Right, no, exactly. So uh, our hope is by you know, creating this word uh, that uh, it will allow uh, people to say, hey, look, uh, we are being forced to solve a problem uh, under the worst possible case conditions, mm-hmm. right? Uh, either we are solving a problem in production <laughs> where you know uh, we haven't no. developed the routines and habits and uh, tooling to be able to even do this work safely, right? You know, uh, you know maybe we need to slowify, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or better yet, you know, we are potentially entering a situation <laughs> where we're going to have no idea what we need to be doing, right, to handle these scenarios. Uh, or another way that I think comes up so much in uh, software development is, uh, you know, just this need, just even this ability to, to say, hey, we need to take a time out here, stop working on features and build some tests for this or uh, refactor, re-architect so that it is testable, <laughs> right? Because, you know, uh, currently we have no, feedback, you know, that we're going, that we're writing code that's going to blow up in production. And so that too is a slowification. And I think the important thing is having the presence of mind or the capability to be able to step back and understand there's a structural disadvantage to your approach. And (laughs) those organizations that spot that structural disadvantage and go, guys, this just isn't working. We need to change your way. Let's embrace the new, let's think differently. I think that's quite rare still where they can look at they, they can look at a thing and go, this isn't working. We need to reboot the way we think about it. And I think there's almost a two-tier structure. There's those companies which will adapt their thinking and they're thriving. Yep. And there are those that don't adapt their thinking and they're dying. And it's almost like things like this and the ability to spot it in leadership that's going to create the companies that become the ones that we know the names for the future and those that are you know assigned to the history books or get bought out or just get crushed because they never changed the way of working and thought about that st- those core real structural issues. Yeah, 100%. And so one of the goals of the book uh, was to have this book aimed not just at the technology leader, but also their boss, to create a yeah. uh, common lexicon, uh, a common set of uh, concepts and terms, you know, to um, you know, be able to have a 
conversation and make decisions together to help achieve, you know, the most important goals of the organization. And so because of that, you know, there's 25 case studies in the book of which 20, only 20% are technology related. And I think one of the things I'm very proud of in the book is that we're taking these concepts and boiling them down to things that everyone should be able to recognize. And so, you know, the, the, um, in terms of solidification, you know, something I learned that I, I thought was just uh, to help me recognize it was, you know, if you look at, uh, uh, sports teams, right? You know, they go into, you know, uh, in fact, we went to a basketball game the, a couple of weeks ago and, you know, they have so many playbooks in the coach's back pocket. There are little time cards, uh, little cards that are quick reference guides of, you know, wh- what decisions are we going to make under these conditions in the third mm-hmm. quarter? I mean, it, you know, these things are not made on the fly, right? These the toughest decisions are actually made, uh, you know, there's like a decision tree that's made beforehand so that you're not making extemporaneous off the fly on the off the cuff decisions, mm. right? Um, you know, during production, and so uh, you know you have timeouts, you know, that you can trigger uh, slowification. Um, you know, so all these things are things that you need in sports, but you need also need in manufacturing. You need in software development, and you see these patterns everywhere, right? And I think one of the aspirations I have in the book is that t- this gives a will give technology leaders a way to communicate, you know, here's a signal mm. that we need to slowify and this is not us trying to gold plate something. No, this is this is required for everyone in the technology organization or team or team of teams to do their work well. There was a point you brought up in the middle of that thought, which was around common lexicon that that I'd love to come back to in a second. So let's just hold that in the air because I think there's something so materially important about common lexicon between business and technology. The fact it's even described differently is is, is an issue in my mind. So maybe let's come back to that in a second. But I just want to finish the deep dive into the model first. Yeah, can I give maybe a case study? Uh, Yeah, by all means. Yes, two of them come to mind. I'll go uh, deeper into the second one. The one of the we had mentioned. uh, uh, we were talking about the, the Apollo moon landing before we started recording. And, and so uh, studying the landing of uh, the first Apollo 11, uh, where it has just never been done before, right? right. Uh, you know, what do you do when you have no experience going to a situation where right, no one's ever landed on the moon before, right? <laughs> yeah, you have no panic, yeah. Right. So How many uh, times a day do you get that feeling, Rob? <laughs> yeah. I, I, reckon, I reckon two or three. <laughs> So if you can't, personally. if you can't undo, right, uh, where must you invest your effort? You know, you, yeah. it turns out there was a tremendous amount of uh, uh, investment in planning and preparation, in simulations, in uh, you know building high fidelity simulation hardware so that astronauts could get. By the time they're doing the first lunar landing, they've actually done it scores of times in production-like scenarios. And it was just so great to see like the dynamics that went into that of you know just how much was invest- invested to make sure that. You know, by the time Neil Armstrong is you know, piloting the uh, lunar lander, you know, 6,000 feet above the moon, it's not the first time that he's done something like that. The other thing that occurred to me, because we'd had that conversation when you were describing the elements of the framework, was the, their approach to modularization and simplification as well. Because when you see coverage of things like Apollo 13, yeah. or we were, you know, we were chatting about For All Mankind, the, <laughs> the TV sure. show, which have based a lot of their you know, there's a lot of, you know, real life stuff taken into the drama there. And when they have an issue in that, they break teams off very quickly. You guys go and solve that element of the problem. We'll take this element of the problem. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, 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 exactly. In fact, uh, yeah, because you have to decompose problems so that they can work on separate pieces independently, right? So that's absolutely right. modularization. The, for simple, for slowification, you know, the, I think the, common most recognizable one for uh technology leadership would be the largest um 
2011, that was a big AWS, the US West, sorry, the US East one availability zone going down. So this is like mm-hmm. oh, AWS that. Cloud's uh, largest yeah. <laughs> so data largest centers. Average. Yeah, and so you know when that went down, you know, so the, most of the largest customers went down because that's where they put their largest customers. Um, but the one curious exception was Netflix, which is, and what made it so curious is that they had talked so publicly about running entirely in the AWS cloud. So yeah. how could they be running <laughs> if uh, they're running entirely exception in the cloud? And so the uh, you know, answer, of course, is was revealed in that uh, famous blog post on, uh, I think it was April 11th, 2011, when they unveiled Chaos Monkey. You know, Chaos yeah, Monkey. that was brilliant. Yeah. I was just so revolutionary in thinking about actually sending something in to break your systems to exactly. test it. I loved it. Loved yeah, so it. Uh, why did they do that? They said, for us to uh, you know migrate to the cloud, uh, we have to have no single point of failure risks. And the, they had concluded that the largest single point of availability, single point of failure risk was AWS, <laughs> right? I think they even said they will never be there when we need them most. And so right. what they did was uh, they built this thing called Chaos Monkey that would randomly kill production servers, uh, VMs in the cloud, you know, during office hours. Absolutely tremendous, a tremendous bit of counterintuitive thinking. Absolutely. And, and so if you are a developer who's responsible for not just building a service, but running the service, and there's something killing your services in the middle of the day, you're going to get very good <laughs> at yeah. making sure that in some sort of automated way that you can fail over to something else. And so, you know, that massive investment in planning and practice, you know, is, result, is what resulted in this magnificent performance uh, in production where they were, you know, running wonderfully well <laughs> when everyone else was uh, simply down. Well, let's move on from that to simplification itself then. So building on what we've just been talking about, simplification you talked about in your summary, which was about linearization, it was about modularization of, of, of problems and breaking it down. What was a case study in that space that resonated with you? Yeah, for sure. Let's do modularization. Yeah, so we actually studied uh, the um, AWS uh, sorry, the Amazon e-commerce transformation in the early 2000s. Mm. And what was so, it was actually amazing. Uh, yeah, I had studied that for over 10 years and rereading kind of the uh, the papers and the interviews of Amazon CTO, Werner Vogels, um, then CTO, still current CTO. I, I, you know, it turns out I had missed something really important. And so, and I actually interviewed uh, Jesse Robbins, uh, who was a famous um, master disaster at Amazon in right. the early 2000s. So, my new understanding of this was that Amazon in the late 90s, it was a pretty simple software stack. Uh, it ran on a, a Netscape e-commerce server. <laughs> it was written in C++. Uh, the the Abidos was written as a C++ plugin. Uh, it ran on two databases, Oracle for e-commerce and uh, uh, I think it was Berkeley DB for the book uh, database. Mm. Uh, and it was, sim- it was pretty simple for them to push code into production. They were doing it hundreds of times uh, a year, but as they added more product categories, you know, they went from two categories to by 20, 2003, there were 35 categories, you know, toys and uh, music and apparel, so clothing, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. So they went from, you know, a handful of SKUs, shopkeeping units to, you know, 50, <laughs> which each one required a database schema change. Uh, and, and so the result was that uh, uh, as the number of teams grew, the ability for teams to independently uh, be able to develop, test, and deploy into production went down, right? That, right uh, yeah. In fact, uh, in the interview of uh, Werner Vogels, he described this ridiculous situation uh, in the early 2000s where 
the digital team. So that's Kindle, Amazon Music, uh, Amazon Video. Uh, when a customer would order one of those products, they would still have to provide a shipping address, a physical shipping address. <laughs> and the reason was that uh, when those teams went to the 35 different ordering teams and said, hey, could you please change the ordering flow so that you don't need a shipping address for these digital products? They said, we didn't budget for it. You know, we can't do it. <laughs> oh, so they became yeah, stuck. And so the net effect was that they went from doing hundreds of deployments a year to being able to do only tens of deployments a year. Most deployments did not finish <laughs> um, nice. because something would go wrong. And and what they had, I mean, they had to basically then fundamentally re-architect their system to create a more loosely coupled approach. Absolutely, right. So the, that is what led to the uh, famous uh, 2003 edict from uh, Jeff Bezos that said, we're going to reorganize the company into these two pizza teams. Hmm. Um, you know, no teams can be no larger that can be fed by two pizzas, which can all work independently and autonomously be thrown at Amazon's largest problems, which then required the re-architecting of the code base uh, yeah. and the services so that uh, the, these hard modular boundaries could be created so that teams could make changes to their parts of the system with ha without having the need to communicate and coordinate, let alone schedule, prioritize, <laughs> escalate, you know, up eight levels, you know, down eight levels to even yeah. do small things. And it's quite a courageous thing to do, to look at something that you've built and put blood, sweat and tears into and then say, nah, we're going to completely recreate it from scratch to make it do the job that we now know we have to do. Yeah. Because our, our understanding of what our problem is has evolved because we've learned on the way. And it takes a lot of leadership courage to be able to stand back and go, nah, we're going to start again because it's going to be better when we do it. It's a great point because it's not just companies like Amazon that have this problem. So it's, it's, it's visible in so many problems across the world. And that's whether it's whether it's built on COTS products, the commercially off-the-shelf products, or whether it's built in um, kind of stuff that they've built from the ground up. These problems that are the technology getting in the way of innovating and moving fast because of decisions that might have made complete sense yeah. 10 or 15 years ago now need to be resolved properly. And my observation is that so many organizations just try to round the corners off on these problems rather than going, right, We've got to take a step back. I mean, actually, we've got to we've got to do some fundamental rearchitecting or transformation of the environment to allow us to work in the way that we want to work. Absolutely. So, uh, I'd love to just bring up two things. One is like, what was the reward of Amazon doing that? You know, what made it? You know, was the juice worth the squeeze? Right, as right. they say. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, uh, how how common this problem is across so many organizations. So, the amazing you know, outcomes of that decision from. Amazon was that they went from doing hundreds of deployments a day in the late 90s to tens of deployments in the early 2000s. By 2011, I think many of you will remember this, John, uh, John Jenkins said uh, in 2011 that they're doing 15,000 deployments a day. And we were all shocked, right? You know, and one yeah. deploy every 11 seconds. Um, and then in 2015, you know, they came out and said, we are doing 136,000 deployments a day. <laughs> right? And so- It's nuts, isn't it? It's, but it shows it works when you think about it. Properly. Absolutely. It's incredible. So this is you know, the notion of you know, creating independence of action so that uh, teams can work independently of each other. And so let me give a counter example I just heard last year, which is so heartbreaking and, uh, and horrible and yet awesome. Uh, someone said, uh, I'm part of a, uh, a mobile phone company. 
And right. the top initiative of the year is to uh, put a in front of every one of our 20 million customers a checkbox that allows them to opt into a $5 a month service for email, for music, uh, for right. movies. It will take uh, $40 million. Uh, it will take mm-hmm. a year because it has to transit across 40 different teams across all four channels of the customer. So it's retail, you know, that's physical stores, e-commerce, support, uh, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And uh, most people oh, we require daily war room meetings, CEO minus one level support. And most people will estimate that, it, you know, give it a 20% chance of success. Right. Why? Because the last two times that you tried it did not work. Right, Jeez. right, right, right. Oh, word. So, that doesn't uh, feel good. Yeah, I wouldn't be the one who got that uh, hospital pass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's unthinkable to think that, did anybody ever stand back and go, what you're actually trying to achieve from a business concept is relatively simple? And it's like, has anybody gone back and gone, that's good value for money, isn't it, lads? Come on, let's have a think about that for a second. It's that it's that, that they're plowing on with it and thinking, hang on a minute, maybe, just maybe, we should make some changes elsewhere right. to make this sort of thing easy. So what's interesting is that what is... So, by the way, does this problem resonate with you? I mean, maybe, have you seen a friend, oh, a yeah, client no, you see the, struggle with this? It's this so horribly entangled operational structure and change has to transit so yeah. many commercial vehicles and team vehicles that it just kills it on the way. And at the end of it all is a project manager who sat in the corner with a tinfoil hat on, wondering <laughs> why the world hates them so much yeah. and why they have to tackle this thing. And then when they get it in, there's this huge sigh of relief when it eventually works. But the amount of effort expended to do what is pretty simple, and no, nobody actually stands back and go. Yeah, that wasn't great value for money, but they keep doing it and history keeps repeating itself. Yeah, exactly. We see it. Uh, Yeah, it resonates. This is the same problem that Amazon found itself in the early 2000s. And and so what is magnificent about this example is that technically this is not a terribly challenging problem, right? I mean, it's more than just, uh, you know, a couple lines of HTML code, you know, granted. But, uh, you know, this is every, you know, so a year's worth of effort spanning 40 different teams, hundreds of people, right? It's not the technical work that is dominated by this is all coordination cost. That's right. And so the language that we put in the book to describe this is that there's really three layers of which work is done. You know, layer one is, you know, the work in front of us. So that could be the code we're working on. It could be the binary running in production, right? You know, uh, it could be the patient in the hospital. Uh, this layer two is, you know, the tools that we use, you know, the IDE, the, you know, Kubernetes or, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the MRI machine. And layer three is the social circuitry. It is uh, the way which uh, nodes in the system interact with each other, right? How do teams interact with each other so that they can uh, do their work? And so in this mobile telco example, it is a failure of design in the layer three uh, yeah. organizational wiring. Right. And so uh, what's incredible, right, is that if you look at Amazon before and after, right, if you look at uh, Netflix before and after, right, the only thing that changed uh, was layer three, right, the management system. And so it is not the project, you know, sure, the project manager uh, is responsible for trying to get this checkbox projects done, uh, but ultimately it is the responsibility of the technology and business leaders for the wiring that they created yeah. that is making work so impossible for people in the organization to do their work. I'll give you a, per- a personal example of that. When I was, I, I ran a large scale cloud transformation program uh, 10, you know, five, 10 years ago. It's when I came across the Phoenix project the first time. Um, we were having a problem. It was just a, it was, it was a basic refactoring migration to the cloud, but it was on a very large scale. And we were finding that we could not get to the cadence of, 
migration that we needed to get to fast enough. And we were having all the same, you know, kind of sticky board conversations and log jam conversations that you're reflecting in, in a number of your books is exactly like that. And, and actually what we got to is one of the fundamental problems was that, that in, to use your to similar version of your words, the, the wiring of just the IT organization and the tick speed that the organization <laughs> had been designed to run at was actually running too slow. And it was the tick speed of the organization, the sort of the, the meta organization around it that was slowing down the, the migration. Yeah. And an example of that was, you know, a decision had been made that any things that get added to the Active Directory, any objects to the <laughs> Active Directory have to be almost personally signed off by a team of three people that is so highly skilled. <laughs> it's a 12-month lead time to get another person into that team. And it was like this, right? And it was like layer after layer of the onion mm. that were all getting in the way of actually trying to thread a needle somewhere else. Is that, is that the sort of thing you're doing? No, absolutely. If, and so the we chose the word social circuitry, organizational wiring, right, as layer three. I, I like them very much. Those, yeah, those terms right. are great. And the goal, it's metaphorical, not figurative. <laughs> We're saying that the organization is like a uh, electronic circuit, a uh, like code, like a hydraulic circuit, mechanical circuit. And, and what a circuit does is, is it gets things that are stored in one area and moves it to where it's needed. And so when, uh, to your point, Dave, uh, there are circuits we can build that uh, where when you need something, you never get what you need when you need it in the right format <laughs> and it's always too late. Um, yep. Right. And so that's, um, that's a, the circuit is doing exactly what it was designed for, or you can rewire it so that everyone has what they need when they need it in the right format, in the right place. And they're not having to talk to everybody. They can talk to, you know, one person or better yet, you know, they don't have to talk to anyone at all, right? right that too right. is a function of how leaders design uh, the organizational circuitry. So, you know, we can talk about like how poorly uh, social circuitry can be created, you know, that can be fixed with modularization. You know, I think so many of us have also lived through, you know, poorly designed linear sequential processes, you know, like code deployments where, uh, you know, in the Phoenix project, uh, it required 45 different teams, you know, that, you know, you add up all the work to get a VM, you know, uh, test environment to, say, a developer, right? And it takes nine weeks, <laughs> right? And the reason is that, you know, there's three different ticketing systems with three different priorities, right? And that, you know, to get what you need through all of the different work from the different functional specialties requires right. massive escalation because the coordination mechanism of the uh, of what was there is just not sufficient. And so, you know, why is CICD uh, so uh, much better? It's because those different activities were linearized. You know, we found exactly what we need from all of those people. We put that, we tie those uh, work centers together, right? And ideally we automate them so that the interfaces between the systems are known. And, you know, suddenly you can get independence of action uh, just like modularization did, you know, even though uh, these are sequential activities. And so, you know, again, we can wire our deployment processes so that we get really horrible outcomes <laughs> and it takes a long time, or you can wire them differently, you know, like in an assembly line uh, and get, you know, fantastic outcomes that, you know, take, you know, not weeks, months or quarters, but instead take, you know, minutes, worst case hours um, and deliver, you know, better outcomes, not just for operations, but for developers as well. Well, let's use that as a jumping on point to the third part of the model and amplification and where you've seen either good or bad instances of what that means. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, so again, uh, with 
amplification, the goal is to create a system so that even weak signals of failure are amplified so that they can be decisively acted upon to better detect, correct, uh, uh, and ideally prevent. And so, I, you know, I think for me, one of my favorite examples of this uh, in the technology space would be, you know, the notion of, you know, what is required, you know, to run, uh, you know, great infrastructure and operations. And, you know, we call that blameless postmortems or, uh, you know, post-incident reviews where, you know, when something bad happens, you know, we engineers are trained or uh, to lead, you know, these blameless postmortems that we, the goal is to create this chronology, uh, not to blame someone, but you know, to figure out what actually happened. What were the mental models? What did they see? Uh, what actually was happening, you know, that led to people, you know, making decisions that they did, you know, that led to, you know, outcomes that weren't so great. Right. I think, uh, you know, for me, uh, one of the stories that made it into the DevOps handbook that I loved was uh, from Randy Schaup, who ran uh, Google App Engine. So he was the engineering director there. And he said that, uh, you know, whenever they had a customer impacting incident, you know, they would lead these blameless post-incident reviews. And the outcome was that the number of incidents went down, right? Because uh, they were learning from these, they were uh, putting in good countermeasures uh, to the point where they didn't have enough customer impacting incidents to have postmortems on. <laughs> and so what did they do problem. about it? That's a good problem to have, isn't it? They get out of the habit of doing postmortems very well because they didn't have any reason to do postmortems. No, no, they made a different decision. They said instead of doing it for just customer impacting incidents, let's have do them also for team impacting incidents. So, mm. uh, when we find ourselves in a situation where there were seven safeguards that uh, were designed to prevent a customer impacting incident, and six of them failed, all right, what <laughs> happened there, and how to Maybe make sure that doesn't up. happen again? Yeah. So this is a this is a great example of uh, amplification. And did you look into the like the open and closed system theories around that? You take the open system, which is the airline system we talked about before in the podcast, where when a mistake's made, it's understood. There's rules and regulations about pilots declare it. It's safe for them to do so, safe environment. They talk about it. They understand it. Processes, procedures, redevelopment. Guess what? The airline industry is very, very safe. Compare that to the medical system, which is closed. And when mistakes are made, they're not discussed and not talked about. And consequently, the, the rate of preventable deaths in medicine is much higher than it is in the airline industry. And if you actually had, you know, there was this stat that said, if the airline industry behaved like the medical industry, two jumbo jets a week would crash yeah. and in nobody fact, would want to fly. And it's like completely different systems showing completely different outcomes. And you know which one you'd rather be with him. Yeah, in fact, of I'm so glad you brought that up. Of the you know 25 case studies and wearing the winning organization, I think a third of them are medical related, and they show up mostly in the slowfication chapter. And, and this is heartbreaking. One of the case studies is uh, uh, we call it the Miss Morris versus Miss Morrison, where there were two patients in the healthcare system, and uh, the wrong patient was operated on, despite 15. Uh, events uh, that uh, said something is wrong here, including the patient saying, you've got the wrong patient. Right? <laughs> We're still going to operate on you. We're still, still operating on you. It's uh, so, yeah. not Monty Pye. It was hor horrible. Right? We're laughing. There's nothing funny about it, but it, it does evoke this horrible reaction. It does. Um, where instead of pausing in production, right, uh, they said, let's keep going <laughs> or we're going to ignore the signal, right? And, you know, we uh, described this other case uh, study where, you know, they were able to decrease the rate of uh, infection rates for C-labs uh, for this particular uh, surgical operation, you know, by three orders of magnitude uh, by doing the opposite. Whenever something was uh, um, not going as planned, they would call it, you know, just like uh, they would in the uh, in a well-run uh, airline or normal operations and uh, crisis operations. And, 
you know, slow-fying to figure out, you know, wh what is wrong either in the playbook or in the situation, you know, and how to make sure that we don't stay in the fast-moving production mode, right? Mm -hmm. the, the fast thinking environment and, and and revert to a slower thinking, more methodical, analytical mode, you know, to make sure that, um, you know, we don't let habits and routines uh, take us to where we don't want to go. Right, particularly if you've got a patient on the stretcher shouting, it's not meant to be me, it's not meant to be me. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's a farcical situation that that can happen. It's just unbelievable, isn't it? But it has happened. You just go, well. It is a great, um, you know, I know it's a, it's a real life scenario, but it's also an excellent metaphor for how many times that actually probably happens in thousands of different scenarios. It's that, it's glaringly obvious yep. that something like you, you're going to operate on the wrong patient, but people press on anyway. Well, so let's let's consider production deployment, where uh, you know involves you know three thousand steps, <laughs> right? And right. someone in one, uh, one point uh, might say, "Oh my gosh, uh, that that's odd," <laughs> right? But let's keep going, right? And uh, two weeks later, you have a massive failure of an ETL pipeline, and all the revenue generating servers stop sending uh, transaction events, uh, you know, into the big Hadoop cluster. I mean, that's never happened, right? <laughs> <laughs> but that's the consequence of if you're in the middle of a very complex process and you're the one who puts their hand up and says, is this the right thing to do? The consequences of your actions are it yeah. might stop all the pre-work. It's been, it's the right thing to do. Yeah. But then it's that structural disadvantage again that says the system's stacked against the odds. So people just go with the flow because the the concept of them stopping that flow is so great that they they just they they fear that yeah. the, the consequences of the, the um, you know saying in stop. other words they made a decision to uh they succumbed to the operating tempo and you know instead of pausing uh the operating tempo sort of prevented them or people felt like uh, they were prevented from doing the right thing uh, does so uh, the amplification you know this is based on information theory uh cloud shannon uh described how Signals have to be generated, transmitted, most importantly, received, <laughs> acted upon, right? And then, you know, ideally, you, you confirm, you know, that the correction, uh, corrective action was actually satisfied the need. Mm. And I love that because it actually says, you know, these are the things that must happen. So when you think about, you know, Dr. Westrom's organizational typology model and psychological safety, really, this is a uh, – represents failures that could be at the generation mode. People can't say yeah. what they really think because they, you know, if you do, you get fired uh, or punished, uh, or it could be a problem with uh, transmission or the receiving of it, right? They're not heard or it could be failure upon acted upon. So I'd love this clinical treatment of the social circuitry in this way, because it gives us even better tools to diagnose, you know, uh, is this a signal generation problem or is this a signal transmission or reception problem? Um, and, you know, as uh, uh, Dr. Claude Shannon said, right, uh, the most important part, communication success is measured by the receiver, <laughs> not, right. not the transmitter. Yeah, absolutely. Well and there's well another dynamic is that, you know, you want the, not only all these critical actions in, the, in the, the value stream, but, you know, they have to be done quickly. And I think one of, you had mentioned airlines, uh, Rob, the, the application chapter opens up with something that happened in winter of 2022, which was the Southwest Airlines cancellation failure. So this is when the big winter storm hit in the uh, United States mm. and, you know, it shut down everybody. There were thousands of uh, airline cancellations, but something really peculiar happened is that uh, within three days, most airlines resumed normal operations or in Southwest Airlines, uh, the number of cancellations kept on climbing, right? And so what, what happened uh, as uh, documented in the uh, uh, business press was that it was this crew scheduling system. 
Mm. So at the end of each day, whenever a crew was not where they were supposed to be uh, and the plane, they would call, they would have to call this phone number uh, to the crew scheduling service and tell them where they were so they could redo the schedules. But they were often on hold for, you know, uh, hours or sometimes in one case, like 22 hours. And so uh, the, when the time, when the time to, when it came time to resume operations the next morning, right, the planes were not where they were supposed to be. Right. <laughs> and so right. they had to cancel more flights. And so essentially they had to reboot operations, right? So they would fly these empty planes to where they're supposed to go, right? Literally have that same problem in the UK with train strikes. So they'll have, you know, the, the train unions are quite active at the moment and you'll get days where, you know, your seven or eight services an hour will be down to one or two services an hour because a lot of them are out on strike. But then actually that lags over into the following day of disruption because all the trends are in the wrong place. Exactly. So what does it have to do with our work? It's, this is now a, an example of where the control overlay Layer three cannot keep up with the production environment. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And so uh, in the worst case, you have to stop operations, right, to get uh, planes to where they need to go, trains to where they need to go, or get the parts in the assembly plant to where they need to go. And so the the mark of a great management system is that uh, it is faster <laughs> than what it is controlling. And, and so to your point, when you have those active directory authorization processes that take 12 months, right, you have a control process Um you know, that is probably profoundly slower than what it needs to go, right? Somehow you need to reorganize the social circuitry so the decision-making can happen much, much more quickly to match the tempo of uh, what is needed. Now, let's maybe bring our conversation to a bit of a conclusion today by returning to the subject of lexicon and, and common language between business and technology. And I think within that, there is something in, in all of this to me about the role of leadership itself and maybe modernizing leadership thinking to be able to <laughs> deal with, you know, to be able to deal with increasingly tech-driven organizations. So maybe, maybe let's start with your your thinking on, on lexicon and where you got to that. Yeah, that was a, that's a great point. In fact, the reason why I laughed is that um, uh, when you said we need to modernize and I was I was thinking, boy, wouldn't it be a shame if leaders thought we have to modernize technology, the layer and layer one and layer two parts of the system? I was like, no, no, no. What needs modernizing is um, leadership thinking, the layer yeah. three yes. activities, right? And you're you're so right. Uh, and so the absolutely agree with you. Our goal of the book is to help create a a vehicle for technology leaders to have better conversations with their leadership uh, and their business counterparts and not talk about microservices and CICD pipelines and uh, open telemetry and Kubernetes, right? Instead, you know, here is how organizations uh, work. Here's why they work the way they do, right? And uh, here's what we can do about it. And it's my genuine hope that by creating a common lexicon, uh, by describing how systems work in so many different industries, uh, in the different phases of value creation, technology, non-technology, you know, manufacturing, design, and so forth, that we can help people have an aha moment of like, oh, here's why it takes a year for us to deliver this checkbox initiative you know, that uh, seems so easy, <laughs> right? And say, this is not a layer one or layer two problem. It's a layer three problem, and this yeah. is our responsibility. And then drives that courageous decision that says, actually, we need to stop and take a step back and look fundamentally at how this organization is wired. 
Yeah, exactly. You know, you mentioned a Winston Churchill quote. Uh, one of my favorite Winston Churchill quotes is, uh, we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us. Hmm. So too, we shape the wiring of our organization and forever after, right? It shapes us. Right. Um, right. And something that we didn't put in the book because uh, it was it seemed a little bit mean spirited, uh, which I'm all for. But uh, <laughs> Steve thought it was a uh, it was very important that we didn't make anyone look stupid. But uh, if I could just put this here as like this like what I was really in my head. Yeah. I, I love this. Um, Dr. Westrom introduced me to the notion of the socio-technical maestro, right? A great leader has usually five characteristics, high energy, high standards, you know, great in the large, mm. uh, also great in the small, and they love walking the floor. And I just like, oh, yes. Now that is absolutely resonates with me in terms of like what I've seen. Mm. But he also introduced me to this other quote. You know, he called it uh, Ravno's Law Number 23. Um, uh, if you have a dope at the top, you will have or soon will have dopes all the way down. Right, 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 right. this has a lot of explanatory power for me as well because it simultaneously explains, you know, the best systems I've ever seen designed, you know, that are just are enabling people to do extraordinary things and do it easily and well. Also explains my most horrible experiences where (laughs) personally, you know, uh, not only could I not do my work easily and well, but I also hated my job, (laughs) right? Because... Even small things required like super heroic amounts of effort, right? And, you know, even when you did get it done, the outcomes were nothing to be proud of. Gene, thank you so much for the insight there. I mean, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And that was just, it was wonderful getting updated and just seeing where you're getting your thinking to at the moment. And I deeply resonant, I think. Well, look, we end every episode of this podcast by asking our guest what they're excited about doing next. And that could be, I'm excited about a great restaurant I've got booked at the weekend, or it could be something in your professional life. So Gene, what are you excited about doing next? Oh my gosh. You know, I got to tell you now that the book is done, I've been having so much fun actually without any guilt working on generative AI projects. I just uh, I thought you were going to so, say oh, sitting on the sofa, staring at the wall, <laughs> Dude, you know, like, like doing nothing. <laughs> There's been some of that, but you know, I just, I haven't been having this much fun uh, programming in decades. It's just, uh, there are so many things that are now within reach, you know, and forget about the things like, you know, not just like these kind of co-pilots that are available, but uh, right, right. just to see how good these, uh, you know, LLMs are at, you know, categorization, summarization. And so uh, I, I am just amazed at you know how many problems can be solved with so little effort these days. <laughs> and, and so I've been spending a ton of time just uh, analyzing emails, uh, you know, summarizing yeah. uh, the uh, experience reports from the DevOps Enterprise uh, Summit. And I, I got to say, I think what's so interesting is that, you know, there's no doubt to me that, you know, something amazing is happening in technology, but the job for the technology leader just got a little bit harder. Uh, If I can just make a little segue here. One of the other sort of mind-blowing things I learned working on the book was um, Steve telling me that apparently healthcare systems, which are so notoriously complex and uh, to run these days, was actually somewhat easy to run in the 1950s because there were only two functional specialties. You Mm. had doctors and nurses. Whereas you compare that now 70 years later, now there are scores of functional specialties just within the clinician space. You have, there was no technology back in the 1950s, right? Now you have technology everywhere, each one of them with a layer two technology team supporting it. So even uh, imi- uh, radiology is not just radiology. It's uh, x-rays, it's MRIs, it's CAT scans, right? So mm-hmm. they now call it imagery. So think about the, the 
responsibility of the layer three circuitry, you know, which if it looks similar to the 1950s, it is so insufficient to do what it needs to do now, which is why you have so many horrendous experiences in healthcare these days. Interesting. So technology, so uh, the layer three social circuitry is has to get increasingly sophisticated the more functional specialties you add. And so the job of the technology leader just got a little bit more complicated because now you have not just dev, QA, ops, information security, and, you know, quote the business. Now you have, you know, the ML ops, AI ops, AI engineers, right? You have to move dev further to the left to these, you know, uh, ML researchers and these uh, people working with the LLMs. And you have to move those groups to the right so they can work, you know, if you are delivering live results to customers, <laughs> right? They can't be an isolated silo. They need to be, you know, coexisting and living with the production services in production. So, you know. I mean, fascinating, fascinating that observation because Rob, Rob and I have, have been kicking the ball around a little bit and we're going to do more on this both on the show this year and sort of generally, generally in our day job about what macro AI transformation begins to start to look like. Yeah. So at the moment, there's a lot of use case, dotted use case, and, and each of those are quite good in their own right, and some of them are ac- actively very impressive in their own right. But it's like, what does the aggregate of that begin to look like, and how does that reform organizations? Yeah, and, and I think one there's one conclusion. I, I, I don't claim to have any ability to prognosticate the future, but you know, one thing is so clear. I mean, I think it's indisputable. As you increase the number of functional specialties that have to be integrated you know, mm-hmm. into a common purpose, the layer three organization wiring must change. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and so, uh, and as you increase the number of functional specialties, the job of the leader has just gotten a little bit more difficult or maybe mm-hmm. a lot more difficult. And so, you know, I would say anyone who thinks that this is going to be an easy change, I <laughs> think it's going to be, you know, mistaken. And which is the reason why uh, we've actually renamed the DevOps Enterprise Summit. This, we've done 19 conferences since uh, 2014. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've renamed it to be the uh, Enterprise Technology Leadership Summit. Um, oh, brilliant! Because, <laughs> because, well, well, it becomes that it be, that becomes the challenge. Yeah, like if you if you get the thinking at the leadership level in the right place, and it's going after the right sort of goals, you get a lot of sort of knock on effect down the structure that you were describing before. And the reverse is also true. That if you don't do that, you it's not quite as you might as well give up and go home. But you ain't achieving any macro. Um, differently dynamic outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's what DevOps is all about. You know, that's what I think many of us had in our head in 2010. But it's funny that uh, over the years, um, now people are saying, I don't, why would I want to go to a conference about CI CD pipelines and automated deployments? So it's like, no, that's not what the that's conference not what is about. about. <laughs> no. So uh, I'm, I'm super excited to the uh, conferences because, uh, you know, uh, we've had over uh, 600 organizations, uh, 1,300 speakers uh, present. And uh, the last year, we had a third of the talks be around generative AI. Just yeah. show us what the frontier looks like and tell us uh, how you're, you know, integrating this into, you know, how you shape your organizations. And, you know, we need to learn because I think uh, generative AI is, uh, you know, has the potential to impact how every parts of uh, technology in our organizations run. Well, Thank you for that, and good luck with the, the repositioning of that. Because actually, it, it is a, it's a small naming change, but it's not a subtle movement in the conversation that needs to be had. And and, and I wish you very well with it, Gene. Oh, thank you so much, and thank you for having me on. And I so much look forward uh, to the next one. It's been some years since uh, you, you and I last talked, Dave. So again, congratulations on all your successes. Thanks, man. Roll on the next one. 
So for this special 50th episode, a huge thanks to our guest this week, Gene. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks to our sound and editing wizard, Ben and Louis, our rejuvenated producer, Marcel, and of course, to all our listeners. We're on LinkedIn, Annex, Dave Chapman, Shauki Zal, and Rob Kernahan. Feel free to follow, connect with us, and please get in touch if you have any comments or ideas for the show. And of course, if you haven't already done that, rate and subscribe to this podcast. See you in another reality next week.